Season 5 has been an interesting one to record. By focusing on the themes of care, health and medicine, we ventured into discourses that we thought were never really approachable from the lens of architecture and design. But then I guess everything can be about design. The season we spoke about plagues and pandemics, menstruation, death and memory, mental health and care, disability and tourism. There were other topics too that we had set out to cover in this season but we were unable to. We really wanted to talk about supervised drug injecting facilities, funerary landscapes, and maybe even discuss Susan Sontag's illness as a metaphor. But we couldn't. And in case you know anyone who can be a great fit for these topics, please let us know and I'd be happy to do bonus episodes. The recognition and support by the Graham Foundation for Advanced Studies in the Fine Arts also gave us the reinforcement to ask bolder questions and tap into fields we did not before. The grant allowed us to streamline our workflows and make the content more accessible. We are revamping our website right now and will be publishing the transcripts of all the recorded episodes very soon. Today, for our final episode of this season, we have with us doctor and architect Diana Anderson, who has skillfully carved a unique career path for herself as a doctorate by approaching healthcare from the perspective of medicine and architecture simultaneously. I am Vaishnavi Shukla and this is Architecture of Center, a podcast where we highlight contemporary discourses that shape the built environment but do not occupy the center stage in our daily lives. We speak to radical designers, thinkers and change makers who are deeply engaged in redefining the way we live and interact with the world around us. Okay, Diana. We are going to start with a big question which is about your career and your career path. You chose two professions which are I mean I can vouch for one of them the toughest career path which is studying architecture and then you also went ahead and got a degree in medicine. Can you talk a little bit about this collaboration between the fields this whole doctor architecture model? I mean of course you know we've heard about people you know studying architecture going into some form of design we've heard about people studying architecture becoming chefs people who studied architecture become something as wild as a lawyer and an aeronautical engineer but i can vouch for the fact that you are the first architect i know who's gone ahead and studied medicine yeah no thanks no thanks for having me on the podcast i'm happy to talk about some of this i get this question a, a lot as you can imagine uh, you mentioned how did i choose i guess the first point is i i don't know that i actually chose this career or set out to do this as most careers happen you get these little twists and turns and sometimes it's a random person who will suggest something that will change your whole direction it's not always oh. a big momentous aha moment but sometimes it's little things and you know when you look back things really fall into place i think but at the time i guess i didn't really have a good plan um set out to create a hybrid field and you also mentioned yeah. architects who become chefs or i have colleagues who've gone into cinematography and filmmaking from yeah. design school i think what really might set this apart is that i i tried to combine two fields and that's been a very challenging journey which we can talk about um in the next few minutes but but it really wasn't a shift from one to the other it was really how do you blend these two and almost create a new hybrid entity but i did start out in architecture yeah. school intending to become an architect i think as most of my 
architecture student colleagues did. Um, I don't know how many of us actually do architecture. We do a lot of different <laughs> things. So it's sort of interesting. It'd be interesting to go back and do some studies and look at that. Maybe people have. Um, but it was really uh, this aha moment for me. I guess it was sort of a big moment on a scholarship trip through Northern Europe and Scandinavia that changed my direction. Um, I've written about this and spoken about this on other podcasts, but we were going through Finland and the Paimio Sanatorium, which was a very famous building by Oliver Alto designed for the treatment of tuberculosis patients prior to understanding the pathophysiology of the disease. And really at that time, architecture was used as a form of treatment. So outdoor uh. time, rest, um, natural sunlight and air, all of these things were felt to actually improve patients and treat them. And so the architect was really tasked with designing a hospital that would foster that and foster healing. Uh. And having walked into that hospital, and it's still used as a as a healthcare facility today, it is a World Heritage Site, and I'd encourage anyone to go and visit if they're over in that part of the world. It was really a moment where I walked in and I didn't feel the way it always felt in hospitals in Canada where I was brought up. You know, hospitals always came with very unpleasant and noxious noises or smells, um, sort of chaos around you or sensory deprivation with almost nothing around you. And walking into this building in the countryside in a you know pine tree forest with yellow walls in some cases, plants, sunlight, communal dining, furniture and patient rooms that w- was designed by the architect. So the architect not only did the core and shell of the building and the interior planning, but also designed everything down to the chairs, the sink basins, and really went into understanding the pathophysiology of the illness at the time. So understanding that it affected the lungs. So the famous Paimio chair is designed so patients can recline at an angle that would be comfortable to breathe. Hand-washing sinks in patient rooms, sort of very avant-garde, I think, for the time, thinking about uh, infection control, uh. but a separate sputum basin so you're not spitting lung secretions into the sink where you're washing your hands. So very detailed thinking, raising patient wardrobes off the floor and millwork off the floor so that the floor could be cleaned in its entirety and you didn't have corners, which could become dirty. And so some of these things I uh. feel like were really advanced. So really this that, it was fascinating to me that the architect could really delve into the so the medical side and design for the entire process of healing um, and sickness. So that was a big aha moment. I, I used that experience to transition to my thesis work in architecture to design a very big hospital that was going on at the time in Montreal for McGill University and was sort of met with a traditional traditional architectural comments in my very traditional school saying a hospital isn't an architectural thesis project. It doesn't have anything to do with design. You should really pick a museum, a community center, uh, housing development. Um, Didn't want to do that and um, won some money from the AIA in the U.S. to travel around and start looking at hospitals and interviewing people. Of course, now when I look back at some of my sketchbooks, I don't know that I really developed a great understanding, but I I did my best at the time. And that was a time when evidence-based design was really just picking up pace, I guess, where the whole idea of studying the effect of the built environment on health outcomes was transitioning. And there was a whole field of healthcare architecture that was coming to fruition. Right now, it's a very well-established field, but it's not that old. Um, The first sort of evidence-based design paper came out in the mid-1980s, you know, and the field Uh has kind of grown since then. So that was really um, how I got into the interest in hospital design. But I I felt when I traveled around looking at different hospitals, I went to New York, I went to Boston, I went to Texas, to California, to places in Canada, and I was really starting to become fascinated with the practice within the building. So I'd always had an interest in, in the practice of medicine, but 
having gone the architecture route, didn't feel that I was prepared enough in the pure and applied science, right? So actually to transition to medical school, I had to do some courses in that area while I was doing my thesis. So that's another discussion for another day, but that was rough, a rough few years. But right from architecture school, I went to medical school. And I have to say, and maybe your listeners will agree, once you've had the architectural design education, you can never really take that hat off. And I think it informs everything that we do. Um, So going to medical school and being shoved into emergency rooms that were, you know, void of any daylight, there were chaos in terms of noise, where the planning was confusing. I kept thinking, what? what is going on here? And um, why aren't we thinking about this from a design lens? And so sort of began the whole idea of wearing these two hats and combining them. For sure, at different phases of my career, I've had to really kind of do a deep dive and practice medicine where I didn't have much time for architecture because the 100 hour week was happening in intern year, that kind of thing. But really, I've never let go of one or the other. And um, if you look at the career path. I sort of did my core schooling, architecture undergrad, architecture master's, medical school. And then I didn't go right to my medical residency. I took time to go and do a fellowship in Texas in healthcare design. And I took time to stay on in an office and gain the hours you need and the exams to actually license. I think it was very important to me to gain the professional stature of architect and to actually license, to be able to have a seat at the table with other architects and have that qualification. It's obviously a long road and with painful points, uh, but it was important to me. I don't necessarily think that everyone has to go that route. And maybe I'm shifting a little, but when we talk about healthcare design, and when I talk to a lot of early career professionals in healthcare, their interest in design isn't really architecture in its purest form, and that's okay. And so I've really come to think a lot about that design exposure and then what we get as architects. But I don't know that everyone has to be a licensed architect to have that design lens to bring to different fields and circumstances. So many of my clinical Mm. colleagues want to think about design and have some training, but I don't know that they need to go through, you know, eight years to Mm. be able to get an architecture license. So I think we need to separate architectural design and then more general healthcare design. Design. So anyway, so I took various moments. I took three years. I did my license. Then I went to medical residency. Then I worked in an office again. I sort of flip-flopped back and forth. That wasn't easy. Really to culminate in what I'm trying to build now and what I do is where I can do a little bit of each every day, which which is challenging. I think that the the clinical practice of medicine is not very well established for people who want to combine bind different types of work. Um, There's a very robust model for the physician scientist, where part of the week you see patients, part of the week you do your bench research. research, That's well established. There are models where physicians will do, you know, four days a week in an academic center and one day a week of private clinical practice. There are those models. It's more difficult when you start to bring in other fields, um, especially if you want to start um, conducting research, which I do, and you need funding for that. It's been it's been a challenge to develop the hybrid model. No, this this ties very well into what I was into what I was going for was actually asking how it works out in your day to day practice uh, as both the doctor and the and the architect because I can imagine that as an architect you are able to look at the design of hospital in a certain sense, but I wonder if ever in your practice uh, as a physician, the architectural training kicks in and if at all, how? So how do you spend your time between between the two professors? And are there, are there boundaries where the two kind of 
cross over where you blur the line between the two or do they still to a certain extent stay compartmentalized in the in the way you approach both yeah that's no, a good question i think maybe we have to unpack it a little bit and i have to do some thinking on my toes to answer it but an important question i think certainly there are many times in a sort of a clinical setting where i i th- think like a designer or or design issues come up and many physicians um and clinicians in general need to think about that or want to or see potential you know a couple of examples that i've written about is you know examining the patient from the right hand side which is really convention taught in medical school but i encountered many clinic rooms where i would go in and and the way the configuration of the room was i couldn't approach the patient from the right hand side and that sort of threw off my practice um took longer had had sort of many impacts in terms of patient care delivery. There are examples from colleagues I've heard more recently in very cluttered operating rooms with lots of screens and equipment where staff have bumped their heads enough to get a concussion because a screen was in the way and then they're out of work for a month. And that's definitely a design issue. So I definitely think about that a lot. I think how we enact change in healthcare has been the most challenging. I do think architecture and medicine are two professions where change is very hard. And maybe that's the case in all professions, but we have seen a shift in nursing, in law, in ethics, towards empiricism, towards the use of evidence-based practice, towards the use of data application. I think that has maybe come easier in some professions, and that's that's come easy to medicine, right? We, we never sort of recommend treatments or um, procedures without thinking about the evidence out there and the science behind it. I think architecture, and these are just opinions, but has been very late to the to the game and there's been a lot of apprehension just because of the nature of our field where there's a huge artistic design and creative component. And I think there's a general fear or concern that that will be lost if we turn towards data application. I don't necessarily agree and certainly within healthcare architecture, I think we have a moral imperative to use data that exists. And if we don't, then we can create harm through our buildings. And I do see a lot of healthcare spaces that create a lot of harm, not just for one person moving through them, but for generations and decades of people using the space, right? We have we have such a huge potential to impact thousands of lives as, as architects because these buildings stand for so long. So I also did a fellowship in bioethics a few years ago. And at the time, my family said a third career. And I said, no, 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 there's really a strategy there. And I really use that as the, the glue to kind of bind the two professions together. And now I think a lot about the practice of healthcare design with a bioethics lens and sort of our our higher um, obligations as architects. And interestingly, there's sort of an emphasis on professional ethics in healthcare design, misconduct and legal proceedings and all of that. But but what about sort of the the ethics around practice and, and the lives that we impact and the utilization of this data? I'm sure this, maybe this is need some examples. But for example, um, I also trained in internal medicine in my residency, but then I went to specialize in geriatric medicine and most recently yes. finished a fellowship in cognitive neurology. So really focusing on dementia care of older adults. Uh. The reason I picked geriatric medicine is I really enjoy working with that demographic, but I think that's the place where design can have the most impact. Everything from quality of life, health outcomes, you name it. I mean, we don't have drugs for aging in a sense, right? It's sort of a part of life and there can be a lot of suffering um, and a lot of complex chronic conditions, but design has a huge impact. We can impact people's brains through design. We can impact the medications they take or may not take. We can impact their mobility, which has a direct healthcare link. 
we can impact their goals of care and what they want in their life in terms of how they want to age. So we can actually do all of that through design. It's like fascinating to me. The literature is not very robust, but there's some interesting evidence. So an example maybe for the listeners is so a series of papers out there that look at how we can prevent people from leaving different locked facilities with dementia, right? So as you dement, yeah. people can develop behaviors like being very agitated or aggressive or wandering and just wanting to wander away. And we don't want people to hurt themselves. So we lock doors to try to keep people in units. We've used alarms. We've used chemical restraint, like sedating people with medication. We've tied people to beds to prevent them from wandering. Very interesting series of studies looks at just using the interior architecture and looking at layout, but also just painting horizontal stripes on the floor in front of an exit door. If you do that with people who have certain types of dementia, they will not approach the door. You can paint a black square in front of an elevator. And the literature says that people interpret that as a hole in the floor. And so nobody really wants to walk into a hole in the floor, so they're not going to approach. Now there's a whole ethical side of whether that's okay. Does that create fear in people? Mm. Are we like scaring people to not exit? And that's another topic. But these are simple techniques. If you turn those horizontal stripes 90 degrees and paint them vertically in front of the door, people go right on out. So it's that sort of link of how do we tie our knowledge of what's happening with the visual centers of the brain in dementia and what we're doing with the interior design of a facility. And can you actually change behavior in a less harmful way through architecture? And that's sort of my an example of what I mean by turning towards empiricism and data. You know, there's data, there's a great paper out <laughs> that looks at um, lighting in nursing homes, right? And if we maximize mm. wavelengths of light for day and night appropriately and circadian rhythm, we can decrease fall rates much more than we can if we installed a very high-tech AI robotic fall prevention system up to almost 43%, almost half of falls can be prevented. This doesn't only have a health impact, but a cost impact, right? We know that every fall in a nursing home costs a certain amount. I think it's 50,000, 60,000, whatever it is, injuries, hospital use, um, pain and suffering. So you can actually just get a cost back to what you might save with better design utilized at the beginning of a project. So those are the, some of the things I've become very passionate about. I write a lot about using evidence in design. I have lectured at architecture schools and I have had some feedback from students to say that hospitals are really not an architectural building where we need creative design. And I would wholeheartedly disagree. I think, you know, the practice of medical planning, of understanding space adjacencies, understanding throughputs of different patients and how staff utilize space. It's extremely complex in hospitals and that's where we need our design knowledge the most, right? I think uh. as architects, we're very good at learning how to problem solve and how to come up with a number of solutions for one problem, right? And a hospital uh. is very complex for that. Actually, I read a really interesting piece that I wanted to mention to, to your listeners, if that's okay, because... I have uh -huh. had a few comments throughout my career, and maybe, maybe people who've done architecture and then shifted careers have had this too, saying, well, you've trained in medicine, you really have a responsibility to see patients for your career because all this money has been invested in your training. I thought about that a lot in recent years and, and felt that I agreed, but a recent commentary in a medical journal actually made the case for a different viewpoint. So doctors, like architects, are trained to problem solve, to take large amounts of data 
and sort of funnel it in your mind and come up with sort of differential diagnoses. Communication skills are a big thing. Um, and the article basically made a case for it's okay if people who are trained clinically don't practice, but take that skill set to something else, right? Take it to policy, take it to government, take it to law, whatever they're going to take it to. And I, I started thinking about architecture in that way as well. And to me, I felt it was a great general education um, that teaches us a lot of skills that we can then use in other fields. What you mentioned about dementia, it's it's interesting because earlier today I was listening to The Daily, the New York Times podcast, and they did a one-hour episode about something different, but about the story of this family, two daughters and their mother who had dementia and how they saw their mother change over the course of, you know, how progressively bad the dementia began. And they, they described how her physical surroundings had changed and the way she used to keep her house, how she used to move around. And so as an architect, I couple of hours ago, just thinking about how the space changes because of a certain illness. The other common thing I also think is in India, um, architects, lawyers, chartered accountants, and um, and doctors. These are the four professions where you work very closely with people, especially when you look at uh, medicine and architecture. They both are deeply ingrained um, in terms of dealing with the human body, right? So whether it's inside the human body or outside the human body, the the center of everything we do revolves around that particular, like the physical human body and the way that body interacts with the space around it, whether it's um, it leads to healthy living or whether that space and their environments lead to mishaps, uh, which, which then sent you to doctor. But that I think is another commonality and I think lastly what architecture education uh, of course does and you're talking about evidence-based design but I also think the big buzzword uh, in western countries right now is design thinking and architecture actually equips you with that skill set where you are able to take your your education and your skill set from that education to actually just go out there and apply to whatever right so people get into consulting people get into all sorts of advocacy groups they work with non-profits and they're able to use that same skill set of as you said right looking at a large set of data of problems and to really like funnel it down so I think that's something that five six years of architecture education does does teach us you've spoken earlier about the Paimyo sanatorium but you've also extensively written about the history of ICUs and if you want to talk about that a little bit. Yeah and I'm not an intensivist so I've practiced in critical care units um, as a general internist during my training Uh, but I got into writing about ICU design so intensive care unit design with some colleagues years ago uh, for various reasons but the Society of Critical Care Medicine is a very interesting multidisciplinary society that has critical care nurses, pharmacists, physical therapists, doctors, anyone related to providing critical care. And they actually had an ICU design committee that I chaired at one point, but it was initially a member where they asked hospitals to submit renovations or new construction projects for critical care units. And every year we would judge them and give them a, give a winner. And this was a worldwide competition, could be pediatric, neonatal, or adult ICU. But what was interesting about it is it was a multidisciplinary jury. So we had architects, engineers, doctors, nurses, pharmacists, respiratory therapists, anyone involved. And we would sit around a table at multiple locations in North America. There were a number of voting sites and talk about these attributes. And we had a sort of 
methodological matrix to go through. So it was sort of standardized between voting sites. And that was really fascinating. And I don't know of any other sort of medical society that does that type of emphasis on the, the unit itself. Mm-hmm. And I've sort of felt that intensivists have always sort of seen this link between the built environment and the outcomes of their patients. Um, so I started writing some textbook chapters after being invited by editors. And these are these are textbooks for intensivists. These are for board certification of ICU doctors, but they asked for a chapter on design, which to me was really kind of bizarre a few years ago. Why would they need a chapter on design if they're going to be treating ICU patients? But there has been such a shift in terms of clinicians wanting this design hat or this design skill set. And just like I did a fellowship in bioethics, I am not a bioethicist, but I have some understanding of the vocabulary and the practice. I actually think the future might hold in medical school a course in design for all doctors to take at one point. Sort of how I got into ICU design writing, but I've, I've done a lot of papers around it and thinking about how ICUs have changed. One maybe tidbit I wanted to mention today is there are also ICU design guidelines that we, well, originally came out in 1995 and we revamped them in about 2000 and seven or eight, something around then that were published, but we're redoing them again. And this time they're being supported by the Society of Critical Care Medicine. And they are a very robust multi-year process looking at all of the existing evidence and really collating it to base our design recommendations on what we know about critical care units. Um, So that's been a huge change in the field, right? That really supports my goal of data-driven design um, in some way. Um, but also because I think it's an area where there's been really robust design guidelines that I haven't necessarily seen in a lot of other fields of medicine. Um, and there's been a number of really fascinating anecdotes along the way. I write a lot about this one patient who was in a critical care unit when I was a resident and who improved a lot when we moved her to a window bed because she didn't have a window in her room, even though that's really not a robust study at all. And there's lots of bias and confounders. And, you know, it was an anecdote that that really led me to write some papers and think about how we could create studies to understand how daylight can impact patients. That was another thing that became clear, right? I talk a lot about evidence and big papers and statistics, but these little anecdotes, these things that patients say to you that you notice um, in a room, in a space, they can actually really create a lot of change on a big scale, even though you think they can't, right? So I wrote to my mentor, Kirk Hamilton, after moving that patient and she got better. But I said, you know, this this is just a story. This isn't, this can't change yeah. anything. And he said, actually, this is the genesis for ideas around confirmation studies that can lead to change. And so for anyone out there, I'd say like, these are important things. I kept a diary during my medical training of things I noticed related to design, things that would help, things that patients said, Right. I had a patient who grabbed my hand when we left the ICU and said, you know, I've been in there for a month and I haven't had a window. Even even a prisoner gets a window, but I didn't have one. And so I wrote a whole article about the idea of windows and how prisoners have the right to a window, but patients don't. So, you know, these things that people say are important and they can really change a career direction even. So but I, I also feel like along with technology and um, progress of the profession and an over-specialization uh, of people who are involved in, in in making of a hospital. I While I was in the U.S., I wrote a paper on Charles Bullfinch, the guy who designed the Massachusetts General Hospital. And he's designed this very, very famous surgery room where the first anesthesia was administered. And, you know, it's almost like a theater the way the way that 
demonstration surgical room has been designed. And now when you look at it, a couple of years ago as a practicing architect, I was revamping a floor in a hospital. And what my role kind of boiled down to was just making sure the room sizes were met because there was another hospital consultant who knew all the guidelines and came in to advise on what pipe went where, where the oxygen ducts went, where this went, where that went. And so when when the students or the professors kind of end up telling you that this is not like a final year project, my fear is that it's because of this hyper-specialization where hospital design has boiled down to services almost, just like integrating services and maybe not as much about design, which is quite sad, right? When you talk about simple things like window, if you're missing out on them, but you're providing everything, all the monitors and all your electricals, you're still not serving the purpose. So maybe that's some, that's some food for thought. I don't know. I mean, hospitals have a huge design component. I mean, so we we have specialists called medical planners, right? That are, that are looking at all of the room types in hospitals and how those pieces go together. There's a huge design component. And I think a great thing to do is to get architecture and medical students together in one room, get them a big piece of paper with an outline of a floor plan. And we used to do what we call gaming chips, cut out little colored pieces that represent all the different rooms. And you you know, it's a really interesting exercise to see how the medical student will start putting together, let's say, an emergency department and the architecture student, and then how their dialogue changes that design. But you have to have an understanding of how patients move through the space, how the operations work. So you mentioned sort of technology and gases and services. I think the complexity of hospital design is also that we can design a fantastic building that's evidence-based, that looks great, that heals, but then you have to put the operations into that and how, and how people work in it. And there's often a gap there. And so yeah. we really have to understand. So standardized design is one example. So there is, there is some talk in long-term care to standardize nursing home design. So there's a, there's a recipe book and a developer or somebody can take one and just plop it down wherever and it'll work. I, I don't agree with that. I don't think that can work. I think the the term standardized design scares me, although I do see potential for sort of like guideline-informed design standards, right, minimum standards that we should all have. But the idea of sort of a cookie-cutter floor plan for a nursing home or hospital scares me a little because the operational aspect is different in different areas for different patient populations, for different staff. Um, And so not only do you have to think about the adjacencies of the rooms and how the hospital's put together, you also have to think about the operations of it, but then you also have to think about the digital environment. And so that's a piece we always kind of leave out or we tack on at the end, but the built environment, the bricks and mortar is one thing, but now we have to think about the technologic environment and how that integrates with the bricks and mortar. And we have to think about it from the beginning not when we're in CDs and, you know, construction administration <laughs> phases. It has to be right at the beginning with schematic thinking, I think. But, you know, in, med- in my medical school training uh, a while ago, uh, I'm not going to say years because it'll date me, but we had a course called the Social Determinants of Community Health or the Social Determinants of Health. And at the time, people made fun of that course. We talked about things like um, public health issues, diet, um, exercise, socioeconomic status affecting health. And people thought, this is hokey. Why are we learning this, right? Why aren't we learning about the cells in the body? But now we know that the social determinants of health are hugely important in humanity's health, right? And it's, it's a well-established, robust field. So we know even after the pandemic that isolation and loneliness, if you look at the publications of papers on that topic prior to COVID, there's a few. And now there's just thousands, right? Because we know that 
if you are lonely, even in your middle-aged years, in your working years of 30s and 40s, that puts you at a higher risk for dementia later in your life. We know that architecture, design of cities, design of communities can impact how people feel in terms of being lonely or their social network around them. And so the social determinants of health are very well accepted in the realm of health science. What hasn't really been quick to take off is the physical determinants of health, what we do. We spend 90% of our time indoors in North America. Buildings are all around us. It's very intuitive that they would affect how we think, how we feel, how we behave. But, but we don't, I think, intuitively have the research to really gain that evidence, to apply that to our future thinking. The other thing that we should be thinking about as architects, not just in healthcare, so this applies to everything, housing, commercial buildings, communities, is should we be measuring how successful our buildings are, right? So I'm referring to something called post-occupancy evaluations or POEs, but I have strong opinions about them. So I sort of don't like that terminology because I'd like to expand it to something different. Maybe I'll call it like building systems measurement or something. But um, the POE traditionally is building a building, waiting for some time for people to get used to it, and then studying how well it's done. This is often done by the same architecture firm that builds the building, which in science you would you would never do that. There's total, total yeah. bias. And so, sci- so medicine has set up a very robust peer review system where people evaluate each other's work. So scientific papers, I read a lot of them. They are anonymous to me and I critique them as a peer reviewer. I believe architecture needs to set up that type of model so we can, a little hard to blind people, right? You know who the architect is because it looks like their style. So it's hard to maybe blind a building and um, anonymize it. But we need some sort of robust peer review system where we can go in and study each other's building or there needs to be a separate even government or private entity that will come in and study the success of buildings to eliminate that bias. Um, And traditionally, architects are not trained in research methodology, right? We don't know how to analyze statistics and set up complex studies. So we often go in and ask people questions in the lobby. Do you like this space? Are you happy today? We've got a POE. Well, that's not very scientific. How do we know that this one person represents thousands of people who use this lobby? So I'm sort of on another crusade to sort of say, how can we measure success of our buildings? Because if we're going to cookie cutter 60,000 new nursing home beds with one floor plan, Do we know it's going to work and help people or is it going to harm people on a big scale? So those are some kind of food for thought. Um, But we've done POEs in housing industries, in commercial sectors. There are some very robust data around measuring design success, um, social housing. So it's not just healthcare. I think it sort of spans a number of different design sectors. So the last question, um, this is our season finale and we are wrapping it up with this episode. If you want to share something that you're working on and maybe talk about what's next for you as you continue on this dual path of being a architect. Yeah, so I'm doing a few things currently, but I am uh, undertaking my first grant funded study that's multi-year, so it's three years long. Um, And I was very grateful to the Alzheimer's Association for funding this research. Because healthcare design is not such a robust field, I think it's hard to just ask for money and and get it. And um, 
I'm very grateful for the funding support to be able to do this, but I thought I would look outside the hospital as a change uh, because most people are not living in nursing homes, right? Most people are not living in hospitals, they're in their communities. And so community architecture and housing design is really important. Um, so for older adults, I am looking at communities and their homes and thinking about what I'm calling transitional spaces, which are sort of indoor outdoor spaces that connect people to the world beyond. So in the home, it might be a porch, a backyard, a bay window, and at the community scale, maybe it's a garden, a park, a street bench, and really understanding how those spaces can impact older adults who live in the community and affect their social health. So things like depression, anxiety, their mental health, um, isolation and loneliness as well, and then also their cognitive health. Um, can this actually affect the brain and cognition? People who are mildly demented, do access to these spaces improve that or, or not? Does it help their cognition? And so this is going to be looked at over um, several years. But to me, it was important to shift my thinking outside the sort of acute care setting and really go into the community and see how we can think about housing and community design. So that's sort of one project that I'm working on. And I would say to the listeners, I guess, um, in closing that I get a lot of emails and calls, uh, mostly from medical students, some from architects and architecture students about how they can blend the two fields. I often find I don't necessarily have a roadmap that everybody's different, but um, I do think that this is a field that will continue to see grow. And I I don't think you need to be a full-on physician and a full-on architect and do all the school and all the exams. And I won't tell you how many exams I've taken, but it's a lot to have that skill set in each. And so I'm very keen to set up uh, hybrid courses and fellowships that can have some of that skill set and you can take it from one profession to the next, but you don't necessarily need to be a full-on architect to appreciate design and have design thinking. But I would say hybrid careers are definitely possible. I have lots of examples of people who've done really cool things, have combined the, the craziest topics together, so don't let that intimidate you. And you can always mm -hmm. find somebody who can be inspiring. And really, I think the world is at a time when hybrid fields are popular and well-respected. And we understand that there are complex problems in the world, climate change, healthcare, politics, and we need sort of collective minds to solve it. Um, and we need sort of yeah. unique combinations of skill sets. And so it's a very good time to think about hybrid careers and hybrid models. Um, and so I think anything is possible at this time. That's a great note to end this. Thank you so much for sharing your work, your your life with us and good luck with the gland. Thanks very much. Special thanks to Ayushi Thakur for the research and design support and Kahan Shah for the background score. You can follow us on Instagram at arcofcenter and reach out to us through our website arcofcenter.com. That is A-R-C-H-O-F-F-C-E-N-T-R-E. -F -F -E. And thanks for listening.